be dismissed. I hope you all are doing well. I hope, uh, did you guys have a good week? Did you? Sure. Maybe. That's good. That's all right. We'd rather be honest, right? It's okay, yeah. Yeah. A lot happens in a week, doesn't it? Temperature. Um, I've heard some amazing stories this week. Did you all hear stories this week? Man, I pray that's what happened. I, I, I was uh, overwhelmed almost with uh, the stories that I heard and uh, the stories that I was able to tell and, and um, just kind of caught up in that. Lisa was sharing with somebody. I won't share it in front of everybody, but she was sharing, you know, God's sense of humor. <laughs> she just wants to confess before you that last week she stood here and said, I've never received a speeding ticket or had a wreck in my life. And God, in his great sense of humor, <laughs> removed that from her, uh, her future testimonies. It wasn't a wreck. <laughs> uh, I love that sense of humor. Um, but what an amazing thing to tell stories. What an amazing thing to hear stories. And, and let's not get distracted by all that. I mean, I don't want to say that storytelling is an end unto itself. Storytelling is what we do to... Con- to communicate some greater truth, some bigger story, some great, big, huge story. And the story that the Christian church is so hung up on is the story of God's love, the story of God's redemption, the story of Jesus coming to earth to save us. And I think that the problem sometimes is we get into churches. See, I, wasn't, I was born and raised in a church, but I wasn't born and raised knowing that Jesus loved me personally. I didn't have that. And, but there's something that happens that we can take that story for granted and, and, you know, something that is difficult is sometimes we'll say, um, yeah, Jesus, Jesus loves us. We get that but, right? As if everything that came before the but didn't, this isn't the point. It's completely the point. It's completely the point. And so all these stories, but the great joy, the great fun in living a life renewed in Christ is you can go around with new eyes and new ears, and you can hear the same old stories been here for years and going, oh, it's about Jesus. That's like Jesus. This reminds me of Jesus. And all of a sudden, our stories begin to have more value. Our stories begin to um, shape lives, change things. Not the least of which change happens in each of us. And we've heard some stories. We've been talking. We spent, we spent all this time walking with Jesus in that, in that series before we did the, took a break to talk about the money. And not that it was a break. It all matters. You know, one of the things we talked about when we talked about this stuff is how Jesus was so completely holistic, it's ridiculous. We kind of segment things in our lives. Well, that was about this, but this is about that. And, and there's this thing, if you read Scripture, if you dare to open it and just look at the text, it's never that easy because it's holistic. It's harder. It's complete. The gospel of Jesus is not a gospel lacking anything. It's a complete gospel, a complete revelation. And, and what I want to do today is we're, we've been talking about Jesus in the New Testament and talking about some of those things, but we're bouncing back and forth. And I don't want us to forget that a majority of our texts we hold in our hand each Sunday is the first testament, the first revelation of God. And we're going to talk today about this amazing story that happened right before Jesus' story. And we talk, you know, what do we do in life? Do you ever find yourself frustrated? Do you ever find yourself waiting for the next thing to happen? 
You know, do you live in that place? God, I don't want to be ungrateful for where we're at right now, but man, the next thing is going to be so cool. It's going to be so great. Come on, we're waiting, we're waiting. The story today ties back to before the story of John, who came before the story of Jesus. You see, because before John was announced in the temple, before Zechariah heard the angel in the Holy of Holies, guess what people heard from God? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. This, this society, this group of people, these, this, the children of God who had known him so intimately, who had, had just followed and, and, and pursued him and sacrificed and done all these things, God just stopped talking completely for 400 years. If you've ever found your place, yourself in that place of life where you were waiting for a word from God, waiting for a hope, waiting for a salvation, waiting for a future, you're in good company, you see. Because God has plans. Before Jesus' story comes the story of Nehemiah. And that's what we're going to talk about today is the book of Nehemiah. But I want to give some context to the story of Nehemiah. I've already said that there's this 400 years of silence where nothing is revealed. Nothing happens. The prophets are silenced. And what's amazing about it, we'll find as we end this journey with Nehemiah, is that it ends at the time you would think that God would start to speak, that God would really start to proclaim things in, in, the, in his people. But it doesn't. But we have to go back a ways for the story. And so I want you to travel with me back. We talk about these things all the time. We talked about I, my father was a wandering Aramean, right? We're going to go back back. But I just want to say real quick a synopsis of where this falls in this uh, story. Besides coming before Jesus, it comes for the Israelites after they've been in slavery and after God delivered them through the Exodus. Remember that story of the Exodus, right? Moses parting the waters and all those great stories of God rescuing his people, bringing them out of slavery, the plagues that he put against the enemies of God's people so that they could be free and get into the promised land. And they get to the promised land and we have David, God after man's own heart, right? Or man after, God, man after God's own heart. I mean, David's this guy that God says, yeah, but David has all these kind of long, intricate, complicated, messy stories, too. See, they're not very clean following Jesus, following God. Hebrews last week talked about how he writes everyone in the story of Jesus. I love that. Moses heard, for the glory of Christ, he says, did what he did. Then we talk about Solomon. Solomon was David's son. Solomon built a temple. Solomon wrote the Proverbs. Solomon, we spent some time with Solomon recently, right? So we come through, the kingdom of Israel divides, and guess what happens? When they are divided, they are destroyed. The temple is destroyed. Now that might be, what? What do you mean the temple was destroyed? Well, the temple where they were sacrificing before was destroyed. The temple where Zechariah receives the word from the Lord is there in the first testament, in the second testament, in the New Testament. So what happens? This is where Nehemiah finds his story. You see, during the time of Nehemiah, Persia was ruling the kingdom. Persia, and a foreign authority, had complete authority over the Israelites. It sounds like a bad, you know, like a return to a bad movie, right? You keep going back to the same thing again. Here they are again. 
And something else I was amazed with as I studied the book of Nehemiah, and some of us have talked this week about how we've read this book and stuff before, but I did not know, and this is maybe amazing to me that I didn't know this, but I didn't know that Ezra and Esther and Nehemiah were contemporaries. See, and what's funny about where you'll find Nehemiah, if you've turned there already, you can turn there, but you'll find Nehemiah about this, this far to the front of your book, which is kind of deceiving because if you look where the Gospel of Matthew is, Matthew's about here. So it looks like that happens way before, but it doesn't. It actually happens right before because of the order of our canon. So we push it back, back to that, oh, those are old, old stories. But we want to hear those stories again. Remember the story of Esther. Ezra comes in and tries to restore the temple. That's what he does, his job, to build the temple again, right? After, guess what happens? God begins to use Persia to release the Jews back into the Holy Land, back into Jerusalem, back to re rebuild the temple. And Ezra is the first part of that story. And he comes in, he rebuilds the temple. But then there's this, the Queen Esther, you heard the story, right? Have, did anybody watch that movie, One Night with the King or A Night with the King? It's a story of Queen Esther and how she gets to this position of influence and saves all the Jews. That sounds familiar. So this is where we find the text today. Nehemiah is there, a contemporary of Ezra. And they've begun to restore the temple after its destruction by their enemies. Let's pray together. Father God, we are uh, humbled to be in your presence. We are grateful to be in your house. We are, we are uh, overwhelmed to be called sons and daughters of the living God. We pray today, Lord, that uh, as we journey um, with your people, that you would open our eyes, give us eyes to see, and give us ears to hear. Give us a mind to know truth. Lord, we don't want to have to convince ourselves. We don't have to convince each other. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would do the convincing. Your Holy Spirit would dwell richly in each of us today as we seek you. Seek your glory. Seek your wisdom. May you be glorified, honored this day and all days. We pray these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Turn with me, if you will, to the book of Nehemiah. And you're, if you're using the Bibles that are on the chairs, it's going to be page 336. So turn there with me. So this is where Nehemiah starts. And, and I want you to hear this story. I want to tell, you know, one thing that strikes me about the Bible sometimes, and this is maybe the pastor's greatest sin. The pastor's greatest sin, well, I mean, you know, is, is that we take the text and we try to extract the truth from it. Okay? We take the text and we try to chop it up to make it into a great little succinct, this is, yes, mm -hmm, and then I can go and put those in my pocket and live my life. But the problem with the text is the text is a love story from God. And the problem with the text is it's real people and real life, and it's not so neatly categorized. It reminds me of, um, I think I told the story before maybe, but my cousin who was a hunter, and, and he, was telling me, he was telling me about uh, the beauty of the animals, and he was telling me about how he hunts because they're so beautiful. Deer are so beautiful to him. Someone said today, their husband's turkey hunting, right? I mean, oh, you to see them in their natural environment, it's so amazing. He says, you know, you get up there before dawn, and you're in the tree stand, and you're waiting. Telling me I'm not a hunter. I've hunted. <laughs> you know. But and he tells me it's so glorious. And then he kills it. <laughs> and that never ceases to amaze me. Now I'm not saying, you know, we shouldn't be sustained by the land. And I'm not saying we shouldn't eat deer or I mean I eat venison all the time. But man, what an amazing because I think, you know, something happens when you take something that's alive and you dissect it and you cut it up and you spread it out and you categorize it and you look at it and you make sense of everything. 
but something's been lost in the process. Let's not sin against God by destroying the breath of his word. So we're just going to hear the story today. That's what I'd like to do and just read through this together. Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1. We join the story already in progress. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hekeliah, in the month of Kislev, on the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the providence in the back of the province, are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. And when I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. And then I said, see, this is the story of Nehemiah. Nehemiah doesn't find himself in Jerusalem. Nehemiah founds, finds himself in Susa, in the city, in the capital. And his brothers come from Jerusalem, and it's amazing that the first thing that Nehemiah thinks to do is say, how are things back home? Do you ever have that conversation with someone? You know, we were talking in the back today, came up and said, how are you today? Good. How are you? Good. And then someone, and I'll just say who it was, Rick. Rick said, uh, great, later on we'll be honest with each other. You know, we do that to each other. His brothers come, and the first thing he says is, how, are, how is the remnant and how is Jerusalem? See, his heart isn't... Maybe not right where he is. His heart and his mind are in another place. And so he questions them, and he asks them this question. And they say, those who survived the exile, that means those, after Persia came in, those who were left, I mean, Nebuchadnezzar came in, those who were left behind are in great trouble and disgrace. See, things aren't good at home, Nehemiah. Things aren't good at home. They're, they're not doing well. Not only that, everyone's making fun of them. That's what it kind of means. And he says the wall of Jerusalem, the wall around the city, is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. And this is the state of Jerusalem. And when Nehemiah hears these things, I want you to look, to spend a minute here looking at his reaction and it says, as soon as he heard these things, he sat down and he wept. Nehemiah, this man living, serving the Persian king, sits down right where he is and begins to weep. And he mourned. It means he lamented. He cried out. And he fasted. And he prayed, what? Before the God of heaven for many days. You see, this is something that Nehemiah did not expect to hear. Nehemiah wasn't ready for the truth. He, I don't know what report he expected, but it clearly hit him so hard he couldn't live like he'd been living before. <clears throat> and he collapses into this holy place of prayer. You see, what strikes me first about Nehemiah is you would think right away, I, I don't know, is it a guy thing? Is it just how we think now? But right away you say, I'm going to go fix it. I'm going to go fix it. And look at how much more genuine Nehemiah's response is whenever 
word that comes back from the Holy Land, the homeland, the seat where God has revealed himself, the temple, he just collapses and he prays and he cries out and he laments and he stops eating. These are familiar stories from the text. Nehemiah is gut sick about the cause of Jerusalem. And here he goes and he says, then I said, and look who Nehemiah is talking to. He begins right away not talking to other people of authority, other people he can call on to help him fix the problem. You know, so many times we rush in in life and we're going to fix it. We're going to get the right people here. We're going to solve this problem. This is an injustice. No, Nehemiah turns to the God who knows injustice. He turns his face toward the heavenly king, you see, and he says this, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. You see, this is the response of a man who's seeking God. He knows the solutions he is seeking is not to be found here. He's not deceiving himself. And the first thing he says here is he humbles himself before God and he professes to God his greatness. And I, I want to say that there's one thing right away we can see from Nehemiah's prayer. If you're going to pray to the holy God, you better know, no, no, in your soul who you're talking to. All the way around, you see. Too many times it's like God our buddy, God our pal, God's going to go do what I want to get done. And Nehemiah does not come with that approach. Nehemiah comes with the approach that you are holy, you are faithful, you have always been there for Israel. His first step, humbling himself before God and speaking back to God his own attributes. Now listen to what he does. Right there in verse, halfway through verse 6, he says this, and this is something that we don't get very well, you see, in our Christianity anymore. We don't do this very well. He says this, I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. Now I want you to know where Nehemiah is. Nehemiah is one who was exiled. He wasn't left behind with the remnant. You see, he, and he's making the best life he can for himself. He's doing quite well, in fact, where he is. And we'll find out about that in a minute. He's not struggling to survive. But yet, whenever this word comes, Nehemiah knows he has something to do with it. Some fault, some shortcoming. And he confesses, and that's the word I'm hung up on here, I confess the sins we Israelites. So first he humbles himself and, and shares, speaks back God's attributes to himself, to God, I should say. And then he confesses the sins. And he confesses not just the sins of the Israelites. He doesn't say, oh God, forgive the Israelites over there, way over there in Jerusalem, way down there. Help those people. They're so sad. They're so poor. Oh God, have mercy on them. No, he says, their sins and my sins. We believe this lie that my sins don't affect those people down there, don't we? We believe that somehow I can sin in my dark little closet of my life and it won't affect anything around me. But brothers and sisters, the problem that we have in life is it doesn't bear out to be true because other sins affect us and our sins affect others. 
And Nehemiah confesses his sins, and you say, great, we know about that. We're Protestants, man. You've got to confess your sins before the Lord Jesus Christ. Ask for his forgiveness. Blood be poured on you so you can be white as snow. We understand confessing our sins. Look what Nehemiah does. He doesn't just confess his own sins. He says, and my father's house have committed. Have you ever confessed the sins of your parents or your grandparents? Have you confessed the sins of brothers and sisters who you're not even, you, you, don't, you don't even feel personally responsible for? Nehemiah is looking at a big picture and he confesses to the God of heaven. And he says this, we haven't obeyed your commands. We haven't obeyed your decrees. We haven't obeyed your laws. You see, the sin, as Nehemiah rightly knows, is a sin against God. He makes this connection between the walls at Jerusalem, the state of the people there, the mocking, the making fun, the lack of holiness there, and he turns his face toward the living God and confesses the sinfulness that has led them to that place. Too many times we sit there and say, oh, why am I here? Poor me, poor me, when it's our sinfulness that's led us to that place, and then we are too proud to go before the king and say, God, forgive me for getting me in this awful place. Don't abandon me here. He confesses to God. Verse 8. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. You see right there, he's going, remember God how you said if you're unfaithful, I'm gonna, I'm gonna cast you out. I'm gonna throw you all over the place, right? And he's seeing the story. He knows they've been exiled. He knows the story is happening to them right there. And you think, okay, so he's confessing that. Listen to what he does. But if you return to me, he's again quoting back God's words. If you return to me and obey my commands, then even if you're exiled people at the farthest horizon, God says, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. You see, the next thing he does is he remembers the promises of God, both good and bad. He knows the sin has led them to where they are. He knows it's his sin and his parents' sin and the sin of other Israelites. And he knows that they're even still, even still, they are not so far from God that he can't draw them back to the place where his holiness reigns. This is our story you see, I think too often these days in our lives, we got so much head knowledge, so much head knowledge. And I, again, the idea of taking the text and abusing it that way to extract some livable principles from it, it reminds me of people who are so sick, so dying, but don't want the doctor. You know? Someone says, oh, I'm in so much pain. Oh, I can't. Oh. And the worst thing I think about our culture right now in America is we believe we can fix ourselves. We think we can fix it ourselves. Well, it, it, that, that doctor's nothing special. I, could, I, I can go in there. I, give me that needle and thread, and I'll just whip stitch this thing shut. It's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. No. And that's what we do with the text, the holy word of God, the living word, the breathing word. We take it, we dissect it, and we put it into a three-point sermon, and we roll out of here, and we say, well, this week I'm going to go do this, this, and this, and I'll be fine. No, because you need to hear from the living word, the God, the God who speaks. This is where healing is found. And Nehemiah knows this. You see, I think we sin constantly. But we sin just as much when we refuse to receive help. Huh. You see, we always think we sin by what we do. 
We think our sin is this, sins of commission. Oh, God, I'll never go out and do that again. I'm so sorry I did that. I'm, I'm sorry I did that. You know what we do more than that? We go, no, no, I got this one. But I'm, good. I'm glad to know you're there. I'll, I'll call you if I need you. You see, that, that speaks volumes about where God reigns in your life. God is the healer. So Nehemiah remembers that no matter how far out, no matter how bad the situation is, no matter where they are, if they would return to the faithfulness shown to them, God will draw them into the place he has chosen. And that is true for us like it's true for them. I don't care where you think you are. I don't care how far you think you are off the path. I don't care how long it's been since you've been in a church because being in a church ain't gonna get you to heaven. You see, you need a word from the living God. And when you have that word from the living God, you will seek, you will pursue it the rest of your life. You will never let up. You will never grow weary. This is our hope. This is where we live. And we don't try to fix it ourselves. We go to the king. Nehemiah remembers the consequences of sin and the promises of obedience. And then listen to what he does here. He started out saying, oh God, have mercy on your people, Israel. And in verse 10, this is what he says. He says, they are your servants huh, and your people whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Again, this is a very common role. He's tying them back. He's saying, God, these are your people. God, do you, you think God doesn't know they're his people? Like, sometimes it amazes me. Why would he say that? Why speak that in his prayer? Because this is a great prayer. You see, Nehemiah is interceding on their behalf. See, we have a heart, we, do, we, we struggle with this, right, to intercede, because I, I say, no, man, my sins are my sins, your sins are your sins. You've got to repent. You've got to follow Jesus. You've got to believe. But here, Nehemiah says, they're your servants and your people whom you've redeemed. He's reminding God, can we do that in our lives? Can we see a place that's so broken in someone's life? I want to say something for a minute about that gut sick feeling you get. If you're one of those people that take the time to sit down and listen to a story, did you hear any stories that really, really made you sick this week? Huh? Did you hear that story? You go, oh man, I wish I hadn't even asked. You know? Oh, that's too ugly. That's too much. Do you think there's any chance that the God of heaven would honor it if you would turn to him and intercede on their behalf? And say, God, they don't know the promises. They don't understand the hope. But I know. I know that you say you've come for the lost, not the saved. I know that you came for the sick, not the healthy. And God, they're sick. Help them. See, we don't like that. Because we like to think we earned our salvation somehow by saying a word at a certain time. You know, one of the things I, I think is God willing, man, the greatest revelation of our life might be all the ways that people were working toward our salvation when we didn't even know it. We think it's an individual venture. Well, I'm going to heaven. Are you in? Man, God's got big stories to tell us about his mighty hand and his great strength. And this is what Nehemiah says then. He says, O Lord, in verse 11, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight 
in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. Now, two things happen here at the end of the prayer that I really thought was interesting. The first is this. First of all, he says, oh, Lord, be attentive to this prayer. He's just saying, God, just answer this prayer, right? But listen to what he says. He turns in the last sentence and says, give your servant success, first of all, right, today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. Now, see, that today translation bothered me because I thought, well, Nehemiah's going like, do it. You know, it sounds like Nehemiah's going, God, I mean it, I really, and I'm interceding for those people. Now, do it. But the problem is, and Nehemiah knows it, that we don't tell God what to do. That's not our place. You know what, brothers and sisters? If God gave you a burden, live with it. He don't owe you anything. I would say, if God gave you a burden, praise him for it. Say, oh God, thanks for the burden. Thanks that you, that you trusted me with it. Show me what you'd have me to do, and then do what Nehemiah does, and wait. That's what Nehemiah does. He waits. He waits for God. The word that's translated today there means at this time. It doesn't literally mean, like, I mean, it, it kind of does, but it's more like, God, you know, give me success at this time. And then look at what he says, by granting your servant, him, that's himself, by granting him favor in the presence of this man. You see, Nehemiah knows something about himself that God knows about Nehemiah too. And this is the, my favorite in chapter one here. It says this. It's one sentence. What's it say? I was cupbearer to the king. You see, Nehemiah knew that somehow this burden that had been given him was a burden given by God, and he knew something about his position in life. You see, Nehemiah wasn't just any old exile. Nehemiah had done a lot of hard work to get to the place where he was. He was cupbearer to the king. I just love how matter-of-factly he says at the end, oh, by the way, I was cupbearer to the king, okay? Because this has some implications for Nehemiah. And so at the last, the last sentence of his prayer there to God, he says, give your servant success. He says, give me success, Lord. I'm serving you by granting him me favor in the presence of this man. Who's this man? It's the guy he knows all too well, the king of Persia. He is cupbearer to the king and you see, this sounds like a familiar story. You might ask, well, why, why did God give him that burden? What's up with that? Because God has big plans. And just like the story of Esther, you know, Jews, one of the things that, that uh, Nehemiah comes down on later on in the book and Ezra comes down hard on is intermarrying, right? But there's this amazing thing that happens right before Nehemiah. That there's this time that when Esther is queen and what she do? She marries the king of Persia. So there's all this stuff where God's working through it. As a matter of fact, I'll bring your attention to this. Um, on the back of your card here, it says, uh, what first step is, well, first one's read Nehemiah 2. We're doing that next week. The second one is memorize Lamentations 2.8 because there's something in Lamentations 2.8 that's amazing about this story. You see, God had big plans. God had big plans. And in the book of Esther, it says, she was there for, perhaps she was there for just such a time as this. And that's why I want to say the last thing about Nehemiah this morning is in his role as cupbearer, it was no accident God had revealed this to him. We talk about this all the time. You know, if I see a need, do I have to fill it? Well, I don't know. Do you think maybe God has you in a special place for that purpose? I don't think we believe that about ourselves. You know? Nehemiah was uniquely placed 
for his role. Uniquely placed, a cupbearer to the king. We were talking this week about what that meant. And man, one of the things that's funny about Nehemiah is you get into Nehemiah, you get to a whole bunch of history. It gets ugly in a hurry. And if you're not a history buff, it's really hard. That's me. I'm not a history buff. <laughs> but what's amazing about this role of cupbearer is they're, they're expendable on one hand, but they're so, so trusted. They're like on the inner, 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 inner circle. Okay? And so he's got privileges because of this. The king trusts him in ways he doesn't trust anyone else in his court. The cupbearer to the king. You see, I always thought he was like the wine taster. That's what I thought his role was. The food and wine taster, you know. There was actually two roles for some kings. They had the food taster and the wine taster. I thought that's what he did. I thought he would sip the wine and say, and it like the parakeet in the cave. Yeah, he doesn't drop dead so the king can have the wine. Not always. It was more like the king so trusted Nehemiah that if Nehemiah brought him a cup to drink, it would be a good cup. Isn't that interesting? It's just a little difference. He didn't sip it in front of the king and wait, he's alive, I can drink it. No, not necessarily. Now, if there's a trust issue, which is, he's probably going to die anyway. <laughs> you know, if there's a trust issue, you can't have this job. He's really in the inner circle here. And God has placed him there. And I don't know when these two guys roll in from Jerusalem, if they understand that when they tell Nehemiah and they see him fall into a puddle on the floor and lament and cry and mourn, and his brother's probably thinking, dude, get up, you're serving the king of Persia. <laughs> that there's something in Nehemiah's being that he knows this is his time. He knows he has to do something for the true king. We're going to find out that Nehemiah has him right where he wants him. And uh, isn't that a glorious thing to live in? I think sometimes we feel like we're lost, you know, don't we? We feel like we're wandering. We feel like we don't know what God has us here for. What's going on with that? That's too much. I can't deal with it. But yet the God of all creation has his hand in your life. I hope you know that today. And I hope you know that um, if it doesn't feel good all the time, if it feels like a burden, feels like you're not up to the task, you might be exactly where you're supposed to be. Let's pray together. Father God, we, uh, we pray that's the case today with us. Like Nehemiah, Lord, we'd be right where you want us to be. We pray, Lord, that... Uh, we would have eyes to see and ears to hear. We pray, Lord, we would have a heart, as Chad reminded us this morning, a heart for the things that you have a heart for. Lord, that you would just speak into our lives, into those places. And pray, Lord, today that if, if we're in a dark place, and if we're in a place where we just think we can't trust, can't trust anybody, we know we can trust you. We know we can trust Jesus. We know that if Jesus is offering us a cup, just like the cup you offered him, and it might seem bad, and it might seem bitter, and it might seem like it's going to be the end of us, that the cup is good. Pray, Lord, today that we would live in that place. We remember today, Lord, that, uh, that there is one who took a cup for us that uh, was so close to you and was speaking your word and saying, my father is in heaven and this is the guy. He loves you so much and you are not outcast and there's hope. 
that whenever he was alone in the garden, Lord, he took the cup because he knew it was good. Pray today, Lord, that if we don't know that Jesus came to die for our sins, to save us from ourselves, to intercede on our behalf, that today we might know, today might be the day that we stop pretending we have it together, that today might be the day that we receive Jesus. We love you and we thank you. We thank you that we are here, wherever we are. We thank you that you've allowed us to hear the stories, to know the truths. And we pray, Lord, that if we are faithful to you, that if we pray and if we wait, you will be faithful to your people. We know that's true. And we love you and thank you. In Jesus' name.